0: Hi, Raquel. Welcome to The Quinn Show. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Huge fan of yours. Can you explain to the listeners what you do and just kind of who you are?
1: Yeah, so I am Raquel Savage, she, her. I am a therapist, educator, and sex worker. I mostly do trauma therapy. Um, I do a technique called EMDR, which processes trauma And I work predominantly with black and brown folks, queer and trans folks, sex workers and survivors. I also started a nonprofit ZEP Wellness Center where we offer all free healing services to the community, to that same population. Mm -hmm. Um, And the staff and board is also black and brown, queer folks, survivors and sex workers. So it's the, the staff and board is a reflection of who we serve. Um, In terms of education, I have a Patreon where I talk about everything from emotional abuse, gaslighting, the psychobiology of trauma, to how to get into sex work, anal sex etiquette, how to ride dick, all of the things between mental health and slutty ho shit. And then I have been a sex worker for about eight years Um, For the first six years, I was a full-service sex worker, and for about half of the time, I have been an online sex worker, and I still do online content for OnlyFans. Um, I also have a production company called Kink Media Group, where I executive produce um, creative projects for... Black and queer uh, sex workers specifically. So we have my podcast, A Savage Life. We have Domination, which is two Black fem doms. Um, we have Ms. B. Nasty's Toy Box, where she reviews uh, adult toys and products. So yeah, there's lots of fun stuff. And I feel like that's a pretty brief, but <laughs> in-depth overview of like the things I do. Totally.
0: I love like the intersection of mental health and sex that you really kind of explore with um, your work. Can you talk about like the relationship between the two? I mean, I know it's a kind of everything and a big question, but how do you think about mental health, trauma, and then sex? Because I don't know if people like typically connect the two, you
1: know? Yeah, definitely. I think that I originally became a therapist because my thought process was Uh, I'll become a sex therapist because I know a lot about sex and how do I make that into something professional? Uh, I don't, I am not a sex therapist. I am just a regular therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I can speak to topics around sex and sexuality. And what I encountered in that process is that when people approach me about sex related things and questions, whether that's like, Oh, I have this certain issue that's a dysfunction or, Oh, I'm trying to learn this certain skill what I typically encounter is that people have a lot of trauma and shame wrapped up in whatever they're asking about, which means that I can't just teach you how to sub dick if you are too traumatized to perform that activity or engage in that activity, right? If you are feeling shameful or if you're embarrassed or if you have shoulds and supposed tos, I say don't shut on yourself, right? So people always... Um, I I find that people have some kind of trauma and trauma defined broadly here um, around their body, sex, sexuality. And so I was like, yeah, trauma is at the center of so many of our experiences and things that we carry with us. So it, it became clear to me that that had to be something that I focus on and center in the work that I do. And really it's just that people think that if they're depressed or anxious or having any kind of mental health issues that their genitals are still going to perform normally or they're still going to be able to engage in like sex in what they would consider a regular way. And it's like your brain is the biggest sex organ. So if you're depressed or you're mad or you're anxious, then yeah, your pussy might not be getting wet or yeah, maybe your dick is not getting hard or maybe you're coming fast or whatever the case may be. So mental health and sex are very much so aligned and connected with each other.
0: Totally. What do you, like, when you talk about this concept of trauma, like, can you give some examples of things that maybe like, we wouldn't naturally think are trauma, but end up really impacting us in the bedroom? Um, Like you even mentioned feeling anxious, right? Or angry, um, impacting how we feel in the bedroom. Like, what are some of those types of things that could impact us?
1: Yeah. So trauma is, is, any kind of real or perceived event that impacts your functioning. And when we think of trauma, typically we think of like natural disasters or car accidents (laughs) or like really big one-off kind of events. And what I like to shift people's mindset to and ultimately work with the most is thinking about trauma Um, in terms of systems of of oppression, right? So the experiences that you have as a woman, the experiences that you have as a black person, the experiences that you have as a queer or disabled person or a trans person, um, the experiences that you have navigating capitalism, like all of those things ultimately create some kind of shame, embarrassment, fear, something that impacts the way you show up with your body, with yourself sexually, and with others sexually. So one of the things that I think of is, and for me specifically, right, is how i used to watch my mom talk about her body that wasn't a direct in like that wasn't a direct thing to me that wasn't a one off event that was like horrific right. and i don't even know if i would call watching a one off example of it traumatic at all it was that I watched it happen over many many years so I learned how to relate to my body through watching my mom relate to hers right Mm -hmm. and I carried into that a lot of fat phobia a lot of things around desirability and people typically wouldn't consider that trauma but it is because then you think about how you relate to your body and oh I don't want to look like this or I need to lose weight or I need to restrict my eating whatever the case may be so trauma can be really broad and can be so many things. I also see it show up with clients around um, specifically cis women around expectations around like how we engage with men. Um, So I, and whether that be like marriage and relationships or parenting, I, I have clients for instance, who are partnered with cis cis men who are shit. Um, And part of the reason that they continue to engage with them is because that is what they Um, have been socialized to believe that they're supposed to do, uh, been socialized to believe is their highest achievement is being partnered with a man. Um, If they have kids, oh, I need to stay with this person to help the family, right? Those are all messages and meanings that we have learned from patriarchy and misogyny and et cetera, et cetera, that end up being really fucking horrible um, in practice and are really difficult also to unpack and reverse after 20 plus, 30 plus years of being brainwashed.
0: Totally. I I saw one of your posts just like to dive into that like cishet men obsession kind of thing. Like I think like it really just resonated with me because – I, I've spent a lot of my life sort of idolizing like white straight men. And I was talking to another guest on this podcast about how in my high school, like men sort of just ran the show and it wasn't explicit trauma, right? They weren't like not letting us sit at the lunch table. It was just more like we listened to them more and they called the shots and they made the plans. And I think that that over the years like made me think, just made me like view the view men differently. And like, I don't know, it just, I yeah, can you speak to like more about these sort of like toxic, straight relationships where the man maybe is just, like, being shitty?
1: (laughs) Yeah, men are shitty. Men men, men are shitty. And more specifically, patriarchy is shitty, right? Like, that really is the system that creates a lot of violence. Because what we know is not only do men perpetuate and benefit from patriarchy, which is what makes them shit, uh, we also know that people who are not men also – perpetuate uh right. patriarchy, right? We see women, for instance, cis women um, engaging in, in saying things like boys will be boys and shit like that, right? That absolutely supports and engages and creates shitty men. So patriarchy is really the issue here. And it ends up, yeah, brainwashing. And we get socialized to believe certain things, the way that we're supposed to behave, the way that we're supposed to show up in relationships, the way that we're supposed to show up in spaces in general, and and maybe not show up, right? Like take up less space, not be so loud, not be so big, not be so bold. Um, And especially how we interact and engage with men, whether we are romantically attracted to them or not, and how we structure our life to kind of fit what would be the male gaze, again, whether we're romantically involved with men or not. Um, I feel like there are just so many ways, and it's really difficult to think outside of what it would be like to not right. be in an environment where there's no patriarchy. So it's like this active kind of thing where you're just having to always um, interrogate what's coming up for you and, and see how you can do things differently and see how you can shift away from patriarchal expectations of things Mm -hmm. um and it's it's really hard because ultimately in some way people and particularly cis women do benefit in some ways from buying into the whole patriarchal bullshit the thing is really literally nobody fucking benefits, right. But, and not, but, and there are social benefits of marrying, right. There are social benefits of being chosen by a man. There are social benefits of having proximity to men. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing. And I think, um, divesting from patriarchy can be complex and very individual and also very, very fucking necessary. Yeah.
0: So what do you do if like, I don't know, day to day, like you're attracted to men. And how do you like, how do you think to yourself, right? Like, am I actually attracted to this person? Or does it say, does it make me feel more worthy? Does it make me feel more like, I don't know, like special, right? There's all these like, um, tick about this of like, do you actually want a boyfriend or do you just want X? You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of an example of this, this phenomenon. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like the compulsory heterosexuality, right? Like right. Us being socialized to think that, well, I must be straight. And which is why we see a lot of people like later in life come out and not ever do that. Um, yeah, so I feel really, I feel really badly for people who are um, attracted to cis men, which includes myself. It is really a fucking, it's a tragedy. And wow, what a fucking tragedy. But, you know, what, for me i'll say how i have practiced uh divesting yeah. from men in in many ways started with me learning to listen to my intuition and get acquainted with my gut so that I can start to and begin to have a better relationship with myself um, and be able to set boundaries because you're kind of unable to do that if you're not connected with yourself. So I spent some time, uh, I think it was maybe like 2016 or 17, I spent like a whole year just trying to listen to my gut and get connected with that. Um, And then I focused on Uh, setting boundaries and learning how, like, what a boundary is and how to set boundaries with people, men or otherwise, and what came up for me as I was trying to set boundaries and what it was like to um, have my boundaries violated and then decide what to do from there. Because another part of the patriarchal bullshit is, like, you're dealing with somebody who you know is showing you red flags, but you're like, oh, there's potential there. Or, like, oh, he didn't mean it like that. And it's, like, the practices being, like, nah, bitch, we have a three-strike fucking, and you're out and stick to it. And when you don't stick to it, you got to be honest with yourself about the consequences. So did that. And that's still not perfect and it will never be perfect. Right. So it's like, sometimes I'm better at it. Sometimes I'm not. Um, so doing that. And honestly, I think being a sex worker has really just helped with a lot of that because having transactional relationships that are like explicitly transactional means that i am the one setting the boundaries i am the one calling the shots i am the one walking away feeling like i got my needs met which in this case was money um so that as just a, a career and practice definitely helped with that entire thing and also made me see a lot of men for who they are you know i, I got to see the worst sides of men, um, and ultimately that helped me not have any interest in them. Um, and I think also just as I've gotten older, I've just become less interested in the buy-in. The buy-in just doesn't feel like it benefits me, and it just uh, I can't I can't pretend to really be interested in in proximity to men in that way, dating men in that way, creating families with men in that way. In fact, I feel like. Historically and evidence-wise, I have a lot of like data that suggests it is a bad decision, right? Um, So I I use all of that in a very like logical and and realistic way to kind of inform who and how I engage with people. And then I'll also say that this last year, I... Maybe like, yeah, this last year at minimum, I really have not engaged with um, cis men at all. And I have also been able to recognize in that, that longer time span, right, not like a couple of weeks, not just a month, like a year and some change, how much more energy I have, how much more time wow. I have to build community with other non-men, how much more time I have to invest in myself and my career and like really truly the benefits of not being around men and the lack of violence. Like <laughs> there is just so much less violence when you are not interacting with men. So um, again, it's a hard thing and figuring out what it looks like for you can take some time and also just be committed to it the best you can. I think that it works out much fucking better. And and I, and I believe uh, statistically speaking, It is much safer when uh, women specifically are not in proximity to men. We live longer, we are healthier and happier. And I always say that if if men were a disease, which I do think men are a disease, but if (laughs) men were a disease and we were to look at all of the statistical facts of the harm that they do, and we had like a fucking sheet that was like, let's just look at the past 50 years of all of the numbers People would be like, we need to get the fuck rid of this. We need to, we need to be gone. We got to figure out how to like isolate them or like get the fuck away from them. It would not be how it is currently, which is, well, right. well, well, no, it would be, we got to get it the fuck. So I try to use that as a comparison when I'm talking to people as well, which is, this is not just like a me personal experience thing. This is not just a... You know whatever this is literally historically speaking ubiquitously speaking anecdotally speaking globally speaking that it is an issue um so divest as best you can
0: <laughs> i mean i just think that was so well put in so many ways and like the tragedy of it which you expressed before is like no matter how much you convince yourself right of all of these things you look at the data and then or you even just know like look Like, every time I'm in one of these, you know, like, relationships or situationships, I feel shitty, I'm not getting my work done, maybe this, 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 and this happens, I end, we end up breaking up, and you can look at that data, but then it's like, the reality is, right, it's like you crave that male attention, you're back in the cycle, you can't get out of the cycle, and, yeah, I just think talking about it like that is really powerful, um, Can we talk about boundaries? Oh, wait. Also, one other thing I was going to say is that the self-worth and, like, gut aspect you were talking about, I feel like has been huge for me personally. Just, like taking time to do things on my own, doing, like, simple tasks, like, start to finish and, like, feeling, like, powerful and, like, I can actually do things. Like, it sounds kind of stupid, but I think it's really helped me divest. (laughs) Um, And then... Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And then... um, Okay, so, yeah, let's talk about boundaries because this is something I've struggled with for a long time and I know all of my friends and definitely Quinn fans and users struggle with this. How do you like, what is a boundary, really? Like, I've started saying recently, and I said this on another episode, that I don't like outdoor dates. Like, I just don't like them. And so I have started telling people, like, like, if we want to go on a date, like a first, the first couple dates, like, I want them to be indoors. Like, I'm not like, it just makes me uncomfortable to be outdoors. I don't know why. And I don't have to explain it to them. So I've just started saying that. And it's a good test of like, seeing how someone can handle, no, or like seeing how someone can handle, uh,
1: just a rule, you know? (laughs) Definitely. So boundaries are things that we use to protect ourselves and others, and they can look so many different ways. When I talk to people about boundaries, I typically start with talking about values, like what feel like your core values, because then that can kind of preface how you create your boundaries. Um, whether that's boundaries for yourself or for others. And that's also an important distinction that there are things that we set boundaries for Mm ourselves. So this can look like if you're in an argument with someone and they call you a bitch, you're not saying to them, don't call me a bitch. You're saying to yourself, this person called me a bitch. I'm no longer going to engage. I'm going to walk away. Right. And violating. And that goes back to values, too, which is I want to be respected as a human. Mm. So those boundaries we set for ourselves versus boundaries we set with other people, which is when we get into this argument, I am not going to accept if you raise your voice at me, if you name call, blah, 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 blah. And if you do one of these things, I'm going to blank with the consequence and then mm-hmm. standing rather uh, uh, doing the consequence um, and being serious about it and being firm in it. Because when we set a boundary and then we're not firm in our consequences, then it, it doesn't work. Right. And right. the other person also going to be serious about it. So, so yeah, maybe start with thinking about your values, right. Things that are important to you, things that keep you safe, things that make you feel vulnerable, things that make you feel unsafe. And then if you're thinking about sex, right. Mm-hmm. Things that um, make you feel powerful, things that make you feel um, comfortable, things that give you pleasure. And then the opposite of all those things too, things that are hurtful, things that are harmful, things that make you feel unsafe, whatever. And then from there thinking about what are the things I need to set the parameters and variables and conditions I need to set around those things in order to make that happen. And then the practice is trying to do it. And it's okay if you fuck it up, right? It's going to be a lifelong kind of practice to do it and making sure you're just investing as much as you possibly can with the context, of course, that I also recognize that some of us like aren't in situations where we're even able to set boundaries. Like some of us are with partners where we're not able to set boundaries and it's just not an option. So figuring out other places you can practice with your family at your job, when you go to fucking target, you know, whatever, figuring out ways that you can still get that practice in where it's going to be safe for you. So yeah, I, I honestly think, in terms of setting boundaries, what has been hardest for me, at least is boundaries with myself, not really boundaries with other, with others. I'm pretty good at saying like, don't do this. No, I know you don't. But for me, I'll have a boundary with myself that I don't communicate, which makes it hard to like hold myself accountable because I didn't communicate the boundary. So I was like, well, they didn't even know it was a boundary. So if I just do it anyway, nobody will know, but I know. And then when it's fucked up, I feel fucked up about it. And one of the worst things and really triggering and traumatic things is violating your own boundaries and feeling really guilty about it and fucked up about it, especially when shit goes left, right? You know, you think about fucking with somebody who you have seen red flags and you say to yourself, okay, on the third red flag, I'm going to stop engaging. And then they do the third red flag and then you keep fucking with them. And you're like, okay, I know I violated my boundaries, but like they're going to be, it's going to be this. And then they do that, uh, that next thing and you're like, fuck. And that shit is really hurtful. And you're like, see bitch, if I were to listen to myself, I wouldn't be in this fucking position. Right. So for me, the boundary setting with myself has been the hardest because it's harder to be accountable to your own shit. But when you start doing that, it really does help make you safer and less vulnerable and feel more fulfilled and more centered and more autonomous and powerful and all of the things.
0: Totally. When I think about like life without boundaries, it's sort of just like running like naked down like the freeway. And then when I think about life, like with boundaries, it's like you're in a nice little like safe car, like driving, like no accidents, you know, or like stopping appropriately. And I feel like it's like setting yourself up for success. And that's what I like. It's not, you know, mean. And I think maybe that women sometimes feel like, oh, like, they're going to hate me if I set this boundary. I feel like it's kind of the opposite, because every time someone sets a boundary with me, I'm like, thank God I have like more, you know, information.
1: Yeah, and you know what? Also, I encourage people who are listening to this to start working through whatever comes up for you when you think about people thinking you're mean. Um, so, wow, what does that feel like? What is the body sensation associated with that? What are the messages and meanings aligned with you being a mean person? Um, because it's okay to be mean. It's okay to be assertive. It's okay to be a bitter ass bitch. I hear that a lot. It's like I don't want to be bitter. Be bitter. What the fuck is wrong with being bitter? Like. Be, figure out the things that make you uncomfortable because that's also going to be helpful because when we have that shit that makes us uncomfortable then we don't do the thing mm-hmm. I don't want to be mean so I'm not going to set this boundary fuck that figure out what's coming up for you when you think people are going to think you're mean build a tolerance for that feeling so you can just sit in it and be like you know what they thought I was mean that's cool because I'm protecting myself you're going to be better off on the back end right so kind of thinking of those things as well is really important
0: yeah. And I think that the weight, like one of the one of the things that women deal with, especially black women, is this role of like the caretaker or like the like, you know, like I just imagine someone like rubbing someone's back. And it's like it's like feeling like you're putting up a boundaries, almost like moving against that image, that sort of like loving, gentle image. And I think maybe that's something we need to interrogate, like you're talking about. Like, who told Definitely. us that we can't feel this way? <laughs> when was that made nope. into a law?
1: <laughs> yeah. And so that speaks to the other side of people's perceptions and things that make you uncomfortable, right? So, as opposed to people thinking you're mean, this is people expect me to play this certain kind of role. Mm. They expect me to show up in this emotional way, or perhaps I have always shown up in this emotional way, which has always gone against my own boundaries. I don't even have the emotional capacity, but I'm always there for people. That's what I do. And so part of it is, yeah, now think about what is it going to be like for you? What comes up for you when you think about that you're going to be breaking that? Because again, you got to set the boundaries to protect yourself. So you have to start sitting in what's the worst part of that feeling. Mm. Because, yeah, you don't always have to fucking be there for people.
0: Right. You and are no, not expected no. to be
1: this this continuously. You are allowed to say, I don't have capacity for this right now. I love you. I support you. I'm here for you. And I need to step away. I need mm. to take a break.
0: What do you think – so, I have so many questions. What do you think about, like – boundaries and and friendships, particularly like girl friendships. Um, I'm someone who loves, who maybe over eagerly like puts up that wall and is sort of like, I can't deal with this right now. Like, I love you, but like, I'm sorry. Um, What do you think about that? And like, what do you owe a friend? What do you like? What, what is the requirement there? (laughs) You know? (laughs)
1: Yeah, friendships are so interesting because of the way that we have pedestaled romantic relationships and we have totally like deprioritized friendships when friendships are like way more important than romantic relationships. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that I encourage folks to do is start treating your friends like you're dating them and be romantic with them and check in with them the same way you would with with your romantic partners. Um, And also figuring out what your friendship looks like just the w- same way you would with a romantic partner um, so all of your friends probably have different roles in your life and figuring out like what reciprocity looks like in that mm. case like I show up in this way you show up in this way and that's what makes me feel safe um, so I don't know that there's like a specific template more so of just figuring out and defining with each of your friends what your roles are and what you're comfortable with and not and having those same kind of conversations around boundaries and consent mm-hmm. and emotional capacity consistently and making space for there to be fucking conflict i feel like one of the things with like cis girlfriends is like either it's hella catty ass horrible conflict or it's like passive aggressive we're gonna ignore it type shit face it head on and and consider and appreciate conflict as an opportunity for uh, greater intimacy for building greater intimacy with each other like saying i didn't i didn't like when you did that mm. this is how it made me feel can you tell me what your experiences of that was oh i didn't you know what i wasn't even thinking of it that way and i'm really and oh wow okay greater intimacy as opposed to making it into a fucking catty fight or telling oh this she did no right use it as a restorative process um and yeah pedestal your friendships as as equally important as your romantic relationships because they are
0: That is so huge and like such a good mindset shift. And I also thought like, what if we had as high standards for who we wanted to be friends with as we do our romantic relationships? Like, I think one of the issues with people and their friends is like, they don't actually like their friends. So it's like hard to put in the effort, right? (laughs) And it's like with your romantic partner, you spent all this time finding the one. And so I wonder if like people should be a little more like picky about their friends.
1: Yeah, if you are someone who doesn't like your friends, I would ask you in what way does that relationship serve you and what is keeping right. you around? And that's the same thing I would ask somebody who's with a romantic partner that they don't really like, right? Because that ends up being some like codependent shit and maybe abandonment issues type stuff. So that's mm. good for you to know about yourself, to know what you're bringing into relationships because you do any you do yourself and the relationship a disservice if you are there and don't really want to fucking be there. Yes. Um, and again again naming that sometimes it's not safe to leave right but in the event that it is figuring out what the fuck is going on with you if you're not fucking with your friends like that so yeah I don't I don't Yeah, I think it's it's definitely and it's okay to have different versions of friends like you can have some friends that all y'all do is go out to shit and you can have other friends where y'all talk about really emotionally heavy shit. And you can have other friends where they meet your family and friends and whatever the fuck, you know, and like, again, figuring out defining the roles the same way you would with a romantic partner.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think like there was a time in my life where friends were almost like a social currency. And that's why I'm kind of talking about that idea, like not liking your friends. It was like the more the merrier, like who, you know, who has the bigger like fucking birthday dinner or whatever. And I feel like over the years, I've kind of shifted to this, like kind of what you're and I think also part of it was like the girl like cattiness, like I never really like fucked with girls. And then, and so that was hard. And so it was almost, it was just like a for show type friendship and like trying to find like people like for different parts of my life. Right. It's like you have people you can just have like so much fun with and just like be hilarious. And then people who like you give good advice or whatever. And, and yeah, they don't have to be perfect all around. Right. I think that's a good, (laughs)
1: that's a good thing. Yeah. And I think also one of the things so when we think of like romantic partners, we always, we think of typically like the one, right? And right. we expect them to have all of these various things that make them so perfect and powerful, which is a lot of bullshit and a very high expectation and very unrealistic. And that's something to think about in our friends as well is honoring what they're able to bring to the table and not expecting them to do other things that they are not able to do and recognizing that for yourself. Like I'm definitely a friend who I like to talk about deep, heavy topics. Mm. I'm cool sometimes to do emotional labor. I love to talk about horror movies. Bitches love to eat. I'll go eat with you, but I'm not the bitch who's going to sit and gossip with you all day. I'm not the bitch who's going to go fucking bungee jumping and skydiving and shit with you. I'm not the bitch who's going to be like going to the club with you all the time. That's not my thing. So don't ask me to fucking do that. Don't get mad at me when I don't do that. That's not what I do, but I am really good at the other things. So like honor that part of me. Right. So similar Mm. kind of concept with your friends as well. It's like, what do they have to offer? What do you have to offer making that kind of a connection and then go finding your, your other needs that you have go find them in other friends
0: totally i i remember this thing my mom told me once i forget the like motto or the phrase or the saying or whatever but it was something like if you're good at something keep doing that rather than trying to like be like okay at something else kind of thing and i think that's so true like just like recognizing when some someone's good at something and just like focusing on that is so helpful instead of like just sitting around wishing that they had, you know, this other thing. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Can we shift to sex work? I don't know how much, let me see how much time we have. Oh, we have a little bit of time. Um, Half an hour. Okay. Um, So can you talk, like, just what have you learned from your eight years of sex work? And like, what do you think, like, if you could just, yeah, if you could just like impart something based on your work, like, what would it be? Like, what, what have been the biggest takeaways?
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. (laughs) (sighs) It definitely has taught me that I am able to set boundaries and make asks and demands for my needs and walk away when they are not met. Um, It definitely has showed me to be less codependent uh, on men and dependent on men in general in terms of their validation, in terms of their proximity and power and the social kind of status and, and currency that you talked about. Um, and also my my for any sex workers who are listening, my always and forever tip is get your money up front. Always, always, always. Um, And that, I feel like, can be applied to other things that are not sex work. But essentially, that is to say, whatever it is that you are expecting from a cis man, get that shit up front before you invest any labor, because you don't want to be on the back end feeling manipulated. And men are going to mend, so they will (laughs) manipulate. So get your money up front.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, How did you... Were I guess was OnlyFans around when you started sex work? No. no, so so you didn't have an OnlyFans until more recently.
1: Yeah, I think I got my OnlyFans in like 2018. But yeah, I, I started with like again for any sex workers listening. I started with like fucking ConnectPal, which was like kind of like, a, <laughs> I've heard like of an OnlyFans <laughs> thing, thing called ChatStar, which was like you text people for money. Um, so I've kind of done. A, dabbled in a lot of the like content and, and online shit. And yeah, I started though with full service work. So I literally, um, you know, I had a Twitter, the evolution of my Twitter is really interesting. Cause I started as like an, a non, um, like freak account. And I just would like tweet about sex and then people were like, oh, my God, who was behind this account? And, like, it was me. And people didn't believe, like, it was a woman. And so then I would, like, maybe post pictures of, like, my boobs or something. And then they're like, you're not real. You're catfishing. So then I, like, started posting pictures of, like, my face and then deleting it type shit. And at that point, I probably had maybe, like, 13,000 followers. This is probably, like, 2013. Um, and men are so fucking... Dense because there was definitely not enough evidence that I was a real person. But how I got into sex work was I said like I'm finna sell some fucking pussy. What's good? And I literally booked my first client for five hundred dollars. They came to my house, my literal home, which I would never do now. Um, I fucked them. It was a little Mexican dude, and uh, he ate really good pussy, but his dick was really small, and got my five hundred dollars. And I was like, wow, that was that's something. And it just it just grew from there. And well, I think within a few months I had moved to Miami. Um and my my platform was growing. So I e- almost immediately had access to a hired clientele. Um and that kind of kicked off that the majority of my clients would become like athletes and celebrities. So I I, I very I very rarely saw like regular tricks, um, the majority of my like full service clients were football players and basketball players and um yeah so I don't remember what your original question was but that's how I got into sex work
0: <laughs> no that's perfect um okay so yeah I guess like what what sort of boundaries do, does a sex worker have to draw I know the money before is really important but what other kinds of things like do do, you, do people push you to do certain things that you don't want to do um that sort of thing
1: yeah, I would say that, honestly, setting boundaries as a sex worker really speaks to your level of privilege. And it is an absolute privilege to be able to set boundaries because there are sex workers who are in situations where they're not able to negotiate safe, uh, consensual money up front, money at all kind of scenarios. So it's a, it's a major privilege that I have been able to practice and then get to a place where I have the leverage to be able to say, no, this is what it is and you cannot negotiate that. So for me, for instance, um, if I'm seeing regular clients who are not NFL or like celebrities, right. um, I'm taking your ID, I'm finding out where you work, I'm getting your work email, I'm running a background check, you're sending me a deposit, right? So I'm doing a lot of vetting up front to make sure that I am somewhat safe when I go and meet this person um, for all of my regular clients, I also like required them to wear a condom and we didn't do any condomless shit. That is not the same for NFL players. I was I used to be fucking them raw for sure. So I'm not even gonna lie and act like I didn't. Um <laughs> and I didn't vet. Like celebrity clients because they're celebrities. They have a, you know, I know who they are. Right. so um, But yeah, boundaries with them more so is just that the money up front thing, which You're is, right. you know, and every girl also has their their different style. I was always the kind of girl where if you DM me, if you send me a message, we're not going to talk for like weeks for free, you're going to DM me and I'm going to be like, hi, my rate is blah, blah, blah. Either you're paying it or you're not. And if you are cool, we can talk. But if you're not, I'm not going to, I don't want to get to know you. My, my like style was that I was kind of bitchy and mean and still am. Um, So that was helpful for me in boundary setting because it usually meant I didn't waste my time.
0: Yeah. I think like, one of the things the like, hist- well, what do I know? But the historical stigma around sex work, I think it's hard for people to wrap their minds around something that like involves pleasure and work. It's like, can't compute. Right. But how do you think about that? And like the stigma around sex work and maybe like its roots in people like, how can we, yeah. How can we like think about that?
1: In terms of pleasure and work?
0: Yeah. That, or just like, I don't know. Yeah. What, why do you think there's a stigma around sex work? I mean, I know that's like a huge question, but I am genuinely curious, like, where does it come from? You know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, people hate women. People hate women who are trying to be autonomous. Mm. Uh, people hate poor people. People hate drug users. People hate trans folks. People hate people who are trying to migrate here. Um, so people hate it's isms and phobias. It's a lot of isms and phobias that then creates this really deep hatred for sex workers and Um, Of course, there's the angle of uh, purity culture and Christianity and this kind of fear of and repression around sex and bodies. So there's really a lot of angles and, and factors that create a lot of stigma and harm and violence and death for sex workers, particularly those who are already more vulnerable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting because sex work is so deeply connected to socioeconomic status and where you live and how you relate to your clients. Right. And all these other, so like, if you hate, you know, yeah, if you hate poor people, that's sex workers are often, you know, low, like have a low economic status. So that's like related. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, how do you like, Oh God, I have so many questions. How do you Um, think about like, I guess going back to that pleasure and work concept, do you ever feel like, do you ever enjoy sex work or is it always a job?
1: I feel like that question, I'm going to answer the question, and I also want to say that I feel like whenever folks ask about pleasure and enjoyment in sex work, Mm -hmm. I always want to preface it with, would we ask a teacher the same thing? Would we ask a bank teller the same thing? And so just thinking about the implications of the question Mm -hmm. is the first thing. The second thing is the majority of people who are in sex work because they're not cis, thin, able-bodied empowerment sex workers, they're not enjoying their fucking job. It's fucking capitalism. They're working because they got to pay bills or they're working because they need to feed their family or keep a roof over their head or whatever. So uh, for that reason as well, I feel like it's, it's a not useless, but... Mm the goal of the question is hard to grasp because the most vulnerable are not like having these enjoyable sexual experiences. Um, And... Sometimes I did enjoy the sex work that I did. Uh, Sometimes I, oftentimes I did not. And that is not to say that it was coercive or non-consensual. It was to say that it's a job. And I think anyone who engages with cishet men know what a performance it is to fuck them. So it is really no difference when you are doing sex work in the capacity that I did. Um, It is the exact same kind of game and play of being sexy and seductive from the perspective of them and wanting them to be attracted to you for the benefit of them. Um, Engaging in sex that is very routine, like you would with someone you're meeting on Tinder, which is maybe make out, maybe do some like neck fucking kissing, sucking some dick and then getting fucked and not having an orgasm. Like that's pretty standard routine for most cis women who are fucking cis men looks the exact same way in most of my sex work experiences. Uh, Sometimes there are differences where like, sometimes the dudes love to eat pussy again, just like if you're meeting dudes on Tinder or if you're dating dudes, sometimes you meet a a fucking champ and they let you eat coochie and it's like, cool, this makes it a little bit better. Right. And so it's the same way in sex work. So yeah, it's not to say that it was like all traumatic and it's also not to say it was all so oh, wonderful sex. It was a various experiences, very similar to uh, people who are not getting paid to have sex.
0: Yeah, I, I apologize if the question was useless and, and, and like not a good question. Um, I guess like where I was going with it is is sort of like there seems to be this sort of like holy aura around sexual pleasure. Like, especially, like, you're talking about, like, in Christianity, it's, like, this sacred sort of thing. And I think it's hard for people to c- conceptualize like oh someone's getting paid or like this is like labor but also it's this holy thing it's almost like it's like like error you know in the, in the brain yeah. so i yeah i just I, I guess that was kind of where i was coming from but yeah
1: yeah and the question isn't a bad question it's definitely a good question to model the different kind of aspects to why a question would even be asked yeah. and to be able to state some of the things around work is work. And the people Mm. who are most vulnerable almost never enjoy any of their jobs. You know, folks who work at, I don't know, other kinds of jobs that are exploited, right? But they're not enjoying their job either. So it's a good opportunity to talk about those things. So it's an absolutely okay question from that perspective. And also, yeah, I think that there is this kind of, especially amongst classed, cis, sex workers of all kinds, whether they're dancers, full service, whatever, there is this desire to make it feel empowering and, and and erotic and sexual and enjoyable because in that in that way there there's a way to uh s- s- add credibility and add validity to the work um but that also ends up othering all of the other sex workers. So there's like a, a hierarchy, right? And <laughs> in terms of who's at the top of the hierarchy and who's at the bottom. And people at the top are always the ones who are making the most money, the ones who are conventionally attractive, the ones who have the least amount of uh body contact with clients, right? And on the bottom of that hierarchy is like black and brown folks, queer and trans folks poor, disabled, um, street-based drug users and their fucking clients for $25 or $10 or for a meal, right? And so when you, part of it is is when you hear like this kind of empowerment side of it, it's like it ends up trying to create validity and I get it because it's like a knee-jerk reaction to be like, it's okay that we do this, but talking from that angle ends up being harmful to the most vulnerable because it's like, who gives a fuck, if they're empowered, they're trying to make fucking money, you know? So it's like, it's a, yeah, it's a, and I think sex workers of all kinds are, are are wanting to be seen and have their personhood honored in some capacity. So we grasp at straws sometimes to figure out how to do that. And there are ways that it works in some people's favors, like strippers saying, I don't actually fuck them. I just dance and I make a thousand dollars. That's makes them feel uh, less, Degraded and less marginalized, but the reality is, you're still a slut, um, and everyone still thinks you're a slut, um, and you are still on this spectrum of being um, not considered a person or not humanized in any way. So, yeah, I always try to go back to censoring folks who are the most marginalized, folks who are the most vulnerable in the conversations, and move away from what would be, you know, the pretty romanticized version of shit.
0: That's really. I think that's a really interesting point because. on TikTok right there's like all these like videos of counting the money and how you know like making a hundred thousand dollars on OnlyFans and I think like like what you're talking about like what is sort of the the reality of the situation or maybe like what are we not hearing behind like you know the glossy um videos um so I think that's really interesting
1: and that's only similar. It's like a it's like a smaller version of regular society because, similar to how, like, in regular society financially, there's like a 1% who makes the majority of the money. And they, oh, yes, it yeah. While everyone gets, it is the exact same thing in sex work. So the sex workers who are like for real, cashing out, big bands, hella money, whoa, 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 whoa they're like the 1% of sex workers and they continue to get richer as that 1% based on how things are going, based on their privilege, based on their access, based on whatever, whatever. So mm-hmm. it really is a model for how things look and is why when I have these kind of conversations, I try to move away from talking about the 1% because it's like, bitch, you're gonna start OnlyFans and you're gonna make like 250 a fucking month. You're not gonna make $50,000 because that's not how it fucking works and it's gonna be hella labor you're gonna be doing way more labor than you're getting paid for and it's gonna be a fucking nightmare and that's what sex work mostly is lots of labor for little pay because that's the reflection of any job under capitalism like it's not just sex work it's fucking jobs in general so yeah yeah, that's that one percent that makes money and um ends up doing the glamorous kind of whatever the fuck and and the funny thing is even for folks who glamorize it in that way they still have experiences that are shitty and they still have experiences that are not great so it's and they still have bad days where they don't fucking make any money so it's just really it's just really interesting
0: I, I really like that idea that it's like sort of like a reflection or an or a microcosm of of a lot of different systems. Like it's not its own universe. Like I think like like yeah. if you were to just say to someone, "Oh, make a YouTube channel," you know, like it'll do super well. It's like, do you know how many fucking Nobody people have about
1: most <laughs> YouTube <laughs>
0: exactly? <laughs> and it's a similar uh, thing, right? It's like you can't just yeah. You have to build this platform. There's all this labor. It's labor, right? It's so much labor, um, and but like easy for you know. Bella Thorne to say or whatever that like she can just turn on another lever to her cash machine just like if she were to make a YouTube channel or whatever except more you know risky. So, Correct yeah
1: and also when we're thinking about like this comparison of make a YouTube and mm-hmm. oh blah, blah blah there's also this angle of if we were to have 10 people in a room and we said oh go make a a YouTube and whatever, the people who would be more likely to succeed would be the ones who are closer to whiteness, closer to being class, closer to being thing, closer to being conventionally attractive. And those who are not would have a harder time. And the same thing in sex work and the same thing in the regular fucking world. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's all about really systems of oppression and how they inform and impact the way we're able to navigate the world.
0: Totally. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I, I, I'm curious about like fat phobia and body positivity, body positivity, um, and how that all fits into all of this. Because one thing I was thinking about recently is, you know, you have women who have like thinness shoved down their throats for 20 years. And then now all of a sudden, right on Instagram, it's like, it's like, Anything goes, like however you like, you know, however your body looks is absolutely perfect. In fact, like you should like run around naked and everyone will love it, you know. It's like this whole like shift. And I wonder if that is not resonating for me because of like years of just like diet culture, like be tiny, be tiny, be tiny. And now it's like, wait, what? Like I I missed something, you know? And like is it can you talk also about like body neutrality and like what's the difference between those two things?
1: Yeah, I actually don't follow the like body neutrality, body okay. positivity. Never mind. None yeah. The, yeah, none of the fucking movements. Um what I, I'll speak to what I would think body neutrality is and how I would conceptualize that. Um So it is interesting because we are all socialized to lean towards and want to be in bodies that are thin and fit whatever standard exists, which is thin and curvy in the right places. Um, And that really has been the standard for what is our foreseeable like generation previously Mm -hmm. and upcoming. And even with the addition of like the Kardashians who added in like BBLs and being thick, that is still leaning towards thinness because they're having fat in certain places only and not in other places. And there's a specific body shape. Um, So yeah, I think when, and let me not even, I don't even actually want to speak to body neutrality because I don't know. I don't want to talk about something I don't know, but what I'll say for me is, um, there is so I actually speaking of TikTok and we just I just had this conversation on my podcast there's this girl on TikTok who talks about um, is plastic surgery feminist uh, and that started like a big discourse and debate on my podcast and it's really interesting because the reality is at the end of the day all of us are playing the cards we were dealt and we're doing our best to navigate the best we fucking can and also, there are a lot of us who aren't are not able to ever navigate in a in a good way because there are people are occupying bodies that are disabled, that are dark skinned, that are fat, et cetera, et cetera. And so it ends up being this really shitty thing because there are some folks who have the ability to even access this kind of like body positivity in a way that like others don't. Mm. Because even in like the body positivity fucking thing, it's like it's still like you don't really see fat bodies that are not proportioned or fat bodies that are really, really full of cellulite and, and really, you know, whatever, and fat rolls in places that otherwise are not considered attractive. It's still very like, Oh, you got a smaller one and you know, and your, your tummy is like kind of flat, but it's like a little roll. And so it's, it's honestly really a lot of bullshit. And um, also I was going to say that the, the angle of also being a sex worker, I think is one that's important because, Part of being a sex worker is 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 part of being a sex worker truly is needing to in some capacity fit into some kind of a fetishization right. in order to make money so we have some girls who really want to look like bimbos because that's the fetish category or whatever they're in you know there's some folks who want to be the really thin really small look like little girls and little boys because that's the so there's it's just it's literally all just informed by like fat phobia and desirability and futurism and colorism and white supremacy and all of it. And really folks who are trying to divest from that shit, yeah. uh, have to actively and ongoingly interrogate all of those things in all aspects of their life. Um, and also be realistic about that you still have to live in this world. Right. So, uh, Yeah, it's a fucking, it's a hard thing. And I think part of what I encounter like with therapy clients is people being like, well, I really am trying to be positive, positive, positive. And I'm like, that's impossible. You can't be fucking positive all the fucking time. Like sometimes you're going to be fucking negative and you're going to hate some shit. So lean into that shit so we can process it. And then we can get to some baseline, which would be like the neutrality thing, right? Right. Which isn't a positive or negative. It's just the I exist kind of a thing. So yeah, and I guess for me, because I've definitely had work done and also have always leaned towards being thicker and have, I like being thicker and have really no desire to be thin, um, but have desired to make my body in a certain way that is appealing to the people who are paying my bills, which ends up not doing the divesting, which means not, you know, all of that. So it's a hard thing to kind of navigate as a sex worker specifically, Um, but for, for me currently, Some of this looks like um, not so much focusing on what my body looks like and more so looking at um, what I'm eating. Right. So this means as opposed to restricting and dieting and the fucking juice shit and the teas, it means just eating what I want to eat and then being okay with and holding space for how I feel about how my body looks as a result. So I don't restrict my eating anymore. I don't do a, oh, I'm going to have a cheat day or I'm not going to do a, I feel bad that I had Indian and Thai food yesterday. I don't, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm eating what the fuck I want to eat. The other part of that is being active in a way that feels good to me and isn't like bitches got to go go do fucking CrossFit or fucking Pilates. No, I hate that shit. I like to ride my bike. I'm going to ride my bike. I like to do like dance classes or hiking. So I'm going to do that Um, and making sure that I'm active because it feels good and it's good for me. And it's not for the goal of losing weight or getting toned. It is so that I feel better. I sleep better. I'm less depressed. So for me, it's less about quite literally how my body looks. And it starts with the things that kind of come before that and shifting my relationship to those things. Um, And then I also stopped shaving my legs, which feels like a really good deterrent for men because they see my really hairy legs and they're like, that is disgusting. And I'm like... Stay away from me
0: then. (laughs) You're like, it worked. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I, yeah, I love that idea of like going back to the basics of like food and, and exercise, because like, it's so crazy that we have this whole like society, like, like mental fuck of like, like the body image, the body positivity, the blah, blah, blah. And it all comes down to like okay, what am I going to eat in 20 minutes for lunch? You know, it's like, how does that like come down to these like kind of mundane choices of like turkey or, or ham or whatever, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, yeah. And then I was going to say, oh, that it kind of sounds like you were making a boundary almost like with yourself of like, I'm not gonna like go after all of these things. Like I'm not going to go to a fucking Pilates class. It's so dumb. And I hate because like, that's just like, I'm not doing that because it makes me upset. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's also really triggering for me because like everybody else, I have been socialized into diet culture and fat phobia. So if I put myself into a space where I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm going to restrict a little bit just this week, that's going to be a triggering fucking spiral for me. Or if I do a, you know what, I'm going to start signing up for this workout class and I'm just going to do it for a month that becomes a fucking trigger. Like all of it just ends up being really fucking triggering because it all goes back to this beauty standard that I'm ultimately trying to fulfill. So I'm just, I, my, yeah, my boundary with myself is I'm not gay. I'm not engaging that shit at all yeah. because no, like and it's, it's too fucking much. So that's, and that's how, and I want to also name that, that, that's been working for me and it's, and it's nice. And I also still do occupy a body that is considered beautiful and I am light skin and I have um, hair that is not considered unattractive. And, you know, I'm still in a body that is like, cause I got work done, but that is like, um, you know, co- conventionally proportioned. So I, I want to also name that because it's, it's always easier to do some of those things when you already have the privilege. It's harder to do some of that shit when you're really not occupying space that is, considered worthy or, or person or humanized or whatever. So it's like both and, cause I obviously yeah. am still like having to battle some things, but it also is much easier for me in many ways because of the way that I look.
0: Yeah. And I, I like, uh, wait, fuck. I keep like getting onto what you're saying and then forgetting. Um, you said, uh, da, 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 about, Oh, Oh, we're getting work done. I think it's actually kind of empowering because <laughs> I think, like, there are so – growing like, I grew up in, like, really toxic diet culture, like, West L.A. And, and it, there was so much restricting, like you're talking about. Like, restriction was the name of the game. Like, kind of self-torture, like, in a way. And I think this idea that, like, okay, I can just go pay for – this and like you know like it's kind of nice it's like it's 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 almost more humanizing than this sort of like slow decay you know what I mean it's like I I think it's I mean obviously there's a lot of like classicism or classism like you're talking about with like can you afford to get the work done and and all that stuff? But I do think like, it's sort of empowering to be able to say like, okay, I'm not going to put myself through this hell. I'm going to go get a Brazilian butt lift. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and also in terms of restriction, one of the things that, um, I try to encourage folks to think about and something that I try to think about is, uh, when we think about, patriarchy and misogyny how restricting really feeds into that because it quite literally is asking you to take up less space it is quite literally asking you to be smaller and so one of the things that is really important for me and again asking others to think about is how to take back that space and how to take up more space and how to be literally bigger so that you are not this this tiny thing being overlooked and ignored and and fitting into like the model of be small you know like metaphorically and literally so yeah there's that just figuring out how to take back space and and we think about this even when we talk about conversations around like man spreading on a train right is like men cis men get to take up so much fucking space where cis women are uh, are or are expected and asked to just be so small and Mm. so quiet and just be there and just do that and 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 i think part of disrupting that is yeah actively being bigger again both metaphorically and literally
0: there's a great leslie jameson essay about about this exact thing. And she says, like, she had an eating disorder, and she says, like, at the core of my eating disorder was this crippling fear of being too much, too large, too too, too anything, honestly. Like, it was just, like, this fear of spilling over, you know, and and it's, I think it's terrifying for a lot of women. And it almost sounds like illogical when you say it out loud, but I think it really resonates for people of just feeling like, ah, I just want to shrink, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it makes a lot of sense because being loud and being noticed and taking up space as a woman is fucking scary because it means that you are going to be noticed. I mean, that people are going to look at you. I mean, people are going to say things to you and they're often hurtful and scary. And this world is scary for cis women and anyone who is not a cis man. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, there's also the reality that sometimes folks are choosing to stay small because it feels safer. And I, I validate and honor that as well. And if you are down to do the work to um, move towards something different, that is incredible too.
0: Well, I think we're about out of time, but I just want to thank you so much. I learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners will as well. And I just like love your perspective. It's so real and really just like mind blowing. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.